partly pursuant to last week and how good I felt about the community of friends that I think we are. You know, I've felt tremendously loved by everybody here. And one of the things that I think about community is we, we remain a place where we care about each other. When we listen to people say, my uncle and my friend and my next door neighbor and my child and my father, I, it, it's, it, it's, it more and more begins to seem to me uh, not only a reminder of how much we connect to each other as a community, but as a teaching in itself, you know, every week I think to myself, if we just did that, it's such a reminder about the frailty of the human condition, the numbers of things that can happen to people. Um, it comes into my mind just now, I hadn't thought of this, that I, I often write about the 14-day retreat that was my entrance into retreat practice up in Toledo, Washington in 1977. But the truth is, it wasn't my very, very beginning practice. Some months before that, I went to a weekend retreat down in San Jose. It was in a private house. Nothing about it was appealing to me. Uh, it was way too crowded. It was like 14 people sleeping in two bedrooms, on the floor, on mattresses, right next to each other, getting dressed and undressed. and It was, it was a little too public and a little bit too close for me to be with strangers, uncomfortable, just that's my thing. And uh, I, I went because my husband said, you have to do this, it's a great thing. <laughs> and I spent, uh, I spent the entire weekend composing irate kind of <laughs> things that I was going to say to him when he picked me up on Sunday night, <laughs> including that he had not clued me into the lack of caffeine on this weekend. <laughs> And I had a monumental headache. It was just a really uncomfortable weekend. <laughs> too hot, too crowded. I didn't get the instructions. So looking back, you think, why did I find myself two months later on a plane going to a 14-day retreat with that kind of a beginning? You wonder about that. And I wondered a lot about it myself. Two months later, I'm on a plane to a retreat, and then the whole rest of my life goes a certain way. Why is that? And I had two clues. One of them was they took a photo at the end of that weekend, you know, kind of the graduation group photo. Everybody gets together, they take a photo. I have that photo. It's black and white. It's up on my wall in, in my study. And uh, I'm sitting, it's really sweet because it's 1977, so I'm uh, 30 years younger than now. And I'm sitting at the corner of the front row. and. Uh, I look like I'm smiling, so it must have not been too terrible, or I, there must have been something redemptive about it, because I looked nice in my face. Uh, the other thing that I remember, so maybe there was something about it that really spoke to my heart that let me know that this was going to be all right. The thing that I remember clearly is they had a little, um, you know those wooden burls that you buy in state parks in the gift shop? that say Sisters of Friends Forever or Home Sweet Home or Father Knows Best or something. <laughs> there was a wooden burl on the fireplace of the living room of this house in San Jose that said, um, life is so difficult, how can we be anything but kind? And I thought to myself, ah, if that's what Buddhists know, 
maybe I, maybe there's something to this. And that really spoke to me. When I listened to everybody saying my sister and my next door neighbor and my child who is this and my mother who is suffering and my 89-year-old friend and my 90-year-old and this, and this new baby who's just come into the world and the families of the 14 Marines and, uh, and in fact, our good friends Martha and Joelle who are really without much hope that uh, there's going to be anything that's going to help at this point for Martha's <coughs> situation. And the fact that that touches all of us. And when you think about that, uh, and that everybody in the world is in that situation. It's not this, that. It's not that, this. That when we listen, everybody's got something. The people who spoke have something, and the people who didn't speak have something. And you realize that all of a sudden for me, and I think for all of us, anything that's in the mind that's, you know, I'll fix them, I'll get them, I'll tell this person off, I'll let this person have a piece of my mind, that goes out of the mind. You realize it's such a frail world. The world is in trouble, and people are in trouble. I mean, in the best of circumstances, you don't get out of this life alive. Old age, sickness, and death catch up with you and everybody else. At some point in my life, I realized that unless I went first, I would lose lots of people that I loved. That was unacceptable to me didn't know how I could do that kind of thing. Who teaches you how to do that thing? And, you know, who teaches you, I think, are friends who do it. We keep learning from each other. I think we come together as a testimonial of the fact, not that that's okay, but that that's what, that's what happens, you know? When we say all of our names, this one and the other one and the other one and the other one, there is, the, there's, first of all, in the wisdom of that, there's, everybody's got something, and there's so many things to have. And on top of that is the wisdom that everybody got up this morning and came here with that in their mind, that there is suffering, there is pain, and, and there's a suffering attendant to the pain that we feel really badly about it. We wish so much it were other. And still, we get up, we come here, we go to work, we do our jobs, we make the beds, we answer the phone calls, we go on. That maybe the great teaching is that it's difficult and we go on. And then it gets less difficult when we keep each other company and we, when we companion each other. I began to think this week about companionship. Really, I prepared everything that I wanted to talk about, about companioning. And to put it in a Buddhist context, I, I thought of two things. First of all, I begin to think more and more that my favorite line, I change this all the time probably, you can call me about that, you can say three weeks ago you said your favorite line was this, and three weeks before that you said your favorite line was that, and I actually know which ones I said were my favorite line. This morning I'm telling you that my favorite line is the, is the teaching where uh, Ananda says to the Buddha, is it true? that noble friends are half the holy life. And the Buddha says, no, it's not. Noble friends are the whole of the holy life. And I think about that so much. I feel it a lot more as I get older. Um, I feel it a lot more as I get older that the thing that friends do for you is they keep you company through the fact of, through all the ups and downs of what's true about life, 
It is true. We lose everything that's dear to us unless they, life loses us first. And then we lose our own health and our own life, which is hard to do. But we do it in the company of friends. So I've been thinking about friends all week and the, the comfort of friends. There's one more piece of Buddhism that I want to put this in the context of. You probably have heard me tell the metta riddle. Uh, that it is said, and my friends tell me that their metta teachers in Asia pose this riddle to them, that when you do metta practice, you know, that you cultivate goodwill towards people, and you do it in a systematic way normally. Um, as far as I can tell, I have not seen any scripture in which the Buddha said do it in a systematic way. I think the Buddha, uh, the Buddha said, towards all beings, boundlessly open your heart with loving kindness towards all beings. But the Metta Sutta and other, as it appears in one place in the text, another place in the canon, in another iteration of it, it doesn't say start with what's nearest and dearest to you and then go out to you know next, nearest and dearest, and next and next and next and next. I think that's some later commentary, a later pedagogical device. But it, it is the normal way in which people do, it is a common way in which people do better practice. They start with wishing well to themselves and their benefactor. And when we teach it, we say, well, probably the Buddha's monks and nuns wished him well because he was their benefactor. But we ask people to think about the people in their lives about whom they have absolutely unalloyed good feeling. And you, they spend a lot of time making um, systematic wishes, praying for the well-being of those people. May you be peaceful. May you be happy. May you be free of suffering. May you feel uh, protected and safe. May you feel contented and pleased. May your physical body support you with strength. May your life unfold smoothly with ease. May you be free of danger. May you have mental happiness. May you have physical happiness. May you have ease of well-being. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be live, with, live with ease. Most people have some rubric, some four phrases, sometimes five, sometimes three, that they say over and over to themselves, thinking, <laughs> first of them alternatively about themselves and about someone else whom they love dearly and without any hesitation so that they don't have to think, well, you know, I really wish you well, but I really wish you hadn't done this or that or the other thing. <laughs> Somebody without reservation. And the pedagogy behind that is that when you do that, since you have no impediment to wishing well, you just do it and do it and do it, and two things happen. One, the mind gets very composed from doing the same thing over and over again. So it gets, um, it, it relaxes itself because it doesn't bobble at all. It just does it over and over again. And the, uh, the second part of it is it gets very uh, intimate with the pleasure of blessing. That uh, it's not possible for the mind to bless and... Um, resent at the same time. And the pedagogy involved is if the mind becomes so clear about the pleasure of blessing, it's loath to give it up to remind itself, but you know, two weeks ago Tuesday, you offended me so much that it's not worth trading it in. It's easier for the, it's, 
the mind in its own wisdom says, two weeks ago Tuesday you hurt my feelings, but you know, you must have been confused. It was the best you could do. It's not your fault. It's not, it's not anything. I don't need to take this personally. May you be well. May you be peaceful. May you be happy. You don't even have to say, I understand all the reasons you can say you did it. It hurt me, but hey, you're a person. May you be peaceful. May you be happy. May you be free of suffering. That the principal beneficiary of blessing is the blesser. It's really true, isn't it? That in order to be in a blessing mood, you have to already feel good. When I'm not in a feeling good, if I put myself in a blessing mood, if I do a practice of blessing, if I can, it's not that easy. Because you say, okay, now I'll do some metta practice. Wait a minute, I'm annoyed at this and this and this and this. I have to finish with the annoying, then I'll bless. <laughs> but, but suppose I had so firmly established a blessing practice, I could bless first. I would accidentally discover that the annoyances are based on views that they're heuristic, those views. They're empty. How many views have I changed in my mind about what's all right and what's not all right? The only view or the only truth that I absolutely know when I know it is that everybody is doing absolutely the best they can. They couldn't be better. That's, everybody is who they are in moment-to-moment unfolding because of everything that's ever happened to them. They couldn't be different. There isn't anything to forgive. I actually don't think anybody gets up in the morning and says, ha-ha, how will I do terrible today? You know, people do terrible, but it's what's coming out of them. So with that having been said, that the principal beneficiary of blessing is the blesser, the meta practice, you start with yourself, you start with whom it's easy to, who it's easy to bless, then you think about, you start with yourself and uh, your benefactor that you only have spectacular thoughts about, presumably. And so the, I think the pedagogy of this is great because then the next category is best beloved. And in that goes your kin, you know, the, your partners, your spouses, your children, your siblings, your parents, your children. Whom are you know that are connected in some very very deeply visceral psychological heartfelt way that you would say do you never have a bad thought about any of those people no 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 it's not completely like the benefactor only wonderful thoughts come up with everybody else human thoughts come up so maybe there's this or that that I always think to myself when people say no 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 not a problem with my best beloved. And say, well, if a magic fairy came and said, listen, I have, you can have any wish. You can just, you know, world peace, of course. But then you can fix up one thing about your partner. <laughs> so everybody can figure out one little thing, you know. Just this little thing. Everything was wonderful about them. But if they just didn't X, Y, or Z, you know, leave the open mail all over the coffee table. Or, you know, whatever it is. You know, there's something. So best beloveds go in that category. Then there's the category of people past the best beloveds. These sort of know. Then there are the people who are familiar strangers who you don't think about until you see them. You know who they are, but you, I really don't think about my, um, my person, the woman who cuts my hair. I like her a lot, but I think about her when I go have my hair cut in between. We don't, or the person who does the dental hygienist. I like her a lot. But we're not in each other's lives, so I don't on a normal basis think about her except when I'm there. Familiar strangers. 
And then the category, so you practice on each of these categories, blessing them, blessing them, blessing them, blessing them. The pedagogy is that um, you'll, if you rev up your motor on blessing what's most dear to you, then the motor will turn itself on and you'll rev, and it'll carry you through all those different categories. And it'll even carry you across the line of familiar stranger about whom you might have neutral feelings into the territory of people that you might have difficult feelings with, difficult people, people who have caused you pain in your life. You know, we've come in the Western practice to be calling them the difficult person, bring up the difficult person in your mind. In the scripture, in fact, it says, or in the commentary, it says, this person is your enemy, bring up your enemy. But we are so politically correct these days, we don't say enemy anymore. We say difficult person, but can even bring up your enemy and think about them. And in the awareness that anything but a benevolent thought causes pain in your own heart, manage to wish them well. You know, it doesn't require amnesia. It doesn't require forgive, uh, saying it was okay what they did, because it was not okay what they did. It was terrible what they did. It caused me a lot of pain. But may they live and thrive. May they live and be well. So as not to interrupt the, the essential peace of mind of my own mind. So that's the whole theory of metta practice. The metta riddle, which again, uh, no one ever asked me. I'm glad about this, but uh, my friends tell me they got asked by their teacher in Burma. The metta riddle is this. You're walking in a jungle uh, with your benefactor, your best friend, <laughs> Uh, a neutral person, a familiar stranger, and your enemy. So there are five people walking along, and you. And all of a sudden, some kind of desperado leaps out from behind a tree and says, for reasons not given in this riddle, one of you needs to be sacrificed. Somebody has to get killed, and then the four others can go on safely to their destination. And you, the person being asked the riddle, are the person who needs to choose. So you're supposed to choose. So when I ask classes about this, well, no, let, let, we won't do it today, but think about it. When I ask, somebody, will, somebody always says, I would choose myself because anything else I couldn't live with. Uh, somebody else will say, I would choose my benefactor because she is so enlightened that she will be able to deal with <laughs> death in the best possible way. Somebody else will say, I would, I would choose the neutral person because there would be, since it wouldn't have any motive of uh, not liking in it, uh, the karma of that choice would be less because it wouldn't be done out of ill will. Someone else says, you know what, let's get real. I would choose my enemy. I, you know, you know it's, it's a, be reasonable about it. But any, I would choose my enemy. Nobody ever says, I would choose my best friend. Nobody ever does. It's not happened yet. I would choose what the person most dear to me. I don't think that's an accident. I think we don't. I think we could make an excuse for everybody else. 
but we wouldn't choose our best friend. So I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about the Buddha saying, um, noble friends of the whole of the holy life. And I was thinking of the role of having somebody in your life that's particularly dear to you in the role of a friend. Could be a friend with whom you have an erotic relationship if you're in a partnered relationship. But I was thinking particularly this week about friends who are long-term friends. I was thinking about it a lot because Martha and I are very good friends for a long time. So it's a very hard piece of news to know that Martha's illness is not in the durable remission that we thought it was in. And uh, that companioning has a particular meaning. I thought about it because I started a book called um, The Rule of Four. Anybody read this book? Yeah. Did you like it a lot? I, I, I read the back cover of it, and uh, I, I, I read the first chapter. I like it very much. And I was also uh, uh, very much taken by the... It's written by two authors together. And they're quite young. It shows a photo here in the back. And it says, uh, um, it says about, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. They graduated from Princeton, or they graduated from somewhere, uh, at Harvard, I suppose. One graduated from Harvard, the other graduated from Princeton in 1998. So they're quite young. 1998. So they're seven years out of college. Uh, uh, Ian Caldwell and Dustin Thomason. Uh, and it says, uh, so-and-so lives in Newport News, and the other one lives in New York City. And uh, they began writing this book after graduating in 1998. The two have been best friends since they were eight years old. I thought to myself, how is it to be best friends with someone since you're eight years old? Um, I, I watched my grandson, who's 14 the other day, playing with a friend. They came up to visit, and I live near a lake. And so I was sitting on the beach watching them in the water. They got in the water with an abandoned bottom of a windsurfer. You know, just a long piece of plastic. No pole, no windsurfer, no, no ropes, no nothing. Just a big piece of plastic. And they uh, hung out in the water, leaning on this piece of plastic for about three hours together. <laughs> just changed sides. One pushed the other, and this one pushed that. And the two 14-year-old boys a big piece of plastic in a body of water. They can spend, you know, they're talking about something for three hours, pushing back and forth on that. On that. I, I um, spoke to my son last night, uh, and uh, my 12-year-old daughter had, uh, uh, a granddaughter, got, uh, had a reunion yesterday with her best, best friend who's been away all summer, and they were spending the day and the night together. I said, what are they doing? He said, they're braiding each other's hair. Yeah, that's what 12-year-old girls do. They braid each other's hair. There's a kind of an intimacy about friendship where you, you don't really, you're not accomplishing anything. It's like a meditation having a friend. It's like a meditation. You don't get together to accomplish a job. You get together to be together. Anybody here has a friend for a long, long time? Long, long time. Anybody has a friend that they talk to? Do you talk to that friend? How often do you talk to that friend? Mm-hmm. 
every couple of weeks. Yeah. Anybody more? Every week? Yeah, yeah, at least. Yeah. I was tremendously impressed recently. The men that grew up uh, next to me, we lived next door to each other from the time we were four until the time we went to uh, uh, college and lost track of each other until quite recently. And he told me about his friend, who I remember well. We went to high school, all of us together. Uh, he said, Lenny and I have called each other every single day since high school. Every single day. And, you know, they, they, they didn't always live on the same side of the country either. But, and Lenny just died two months ago. said, Lenny and I have talked to each other every single day since high school. You know, it's an amazing thing. So I want to talk about, uh, about friends and, and uh, the consolation of knowing that there's somebody that you can call. So let's not do even about how, who here has an, uh, an old friend from years ago. Uh, here's, a, here's, here's a truth about me. Uh, when I am troubled, if I were to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning and be troubled about something, ever happened to you get up at 2 o'clock in the morning and be troubled about something? <laughs> Usually I lie there and be troubled until I go back to sleep. I mean, there are things that I do or, you know practices that I might do. One of the practices that I might do is I think about the relatively small list, but nevertheless list, of people that I could call at 2 o'clock in the morning <laughs> and say, this is Sylvia, and I need to talk, who would say, start talking, without saying, hey, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> but anybody gets that? There's a, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think about definitions of what's a friend. <laughs> you can go over to the house and take a bath. So I want to talk about the various dimensions of friendship and community. I also want to talk about it because uh, the summer is time of family reunions. And anybody went to a family reunion this summer or is going to a family reunion? They are complicated events, are they not? <laughs> because not everybody in the fa not everybody wants to go, uh, and not everybody likes everybody. Is that not so? But you go somehow. Why do you go? Pardon me? Yeah. They're coming to my house. They're right? coming. We're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I just got back from them last week. My husband's family is from Massachusetts. It was in Cape Cod, So, you know, it was a See, I was I, I had I had two ways that I was going to go with this. One is uh, there's something about getting together with family that you've known over in, that are your family. Here's here's the point where I'm going with it. I think actually, if you come to an experience with eyes that say I could learn something from this experience, go to any experience. You can go to a great Dharma talk by the wizard Dharma talker of the world. Or you could go to a family reunion, and you know. But if you come with eyes, then you see what's true. If I go to a family reunion now, what I see is that I'm the oldest person there. That that didn't always used to be. Seemed to me like the day before yesterday, I was the youngest person there. 
and my cousin Bernice and this one, and they were all those people older than I, not to speak of my aunts and uncles and my mother's aunts and uncles, all of whom are no longer on this plane of existence. So all you have to do is go with your eyes open and get a, a really a sense of, um, I read this in this Rule of Four this morning, it's very good writing, talking about the sense of uh, uh, aging generations. They said, beauty turning into decay, turning into beauty, turning into decay, as a way of talking about the cycles of being and non-being and being and non-being. And I thought that was a really a lovely way to think about it, that past the aging and the decay is the arising of something new. So you could just go and look with new eyes. You could see with eyes. And I was thinking about groups that come together as companions, not like family groups, but intentional groups like this group, that we come together with a particular intention. And one of the intentions I think we come together around is uh, the intention of hearing truth and having it echoed back and forth. Sometimes I think to myself, I really need to be here because uh, otherwise I wouldn't hear Dharma every week. And this obligates me to hear Dharma. It doesn't much matter to me who says it. You know, I, you know, sometimes I like the way I say it better than other times, but somebody should say it. Somebody should hold the place of saying, look, these are the things that happen. Uh, things change. Uh, there is loss. There is pain. It is manageable. One more thing, and I think we, I want to go ahead with what are the insights we learn from each other. But I want to I leap ahead to what I hope I'll get to say at the end of the time, that I'm hopeful in my own practice and in yours that the insights aren't just the insights that comfort, but that they're the insights that inspire, you know, that then we go out and we do something with it. Like the spiritual activism conference that happened a couple of weeks ago in Berkeley. That, that when we see clearly, look, there's another kind of, uh, there's, a, there's a message that needs to get put out in the world. And you come together with a bunch of people who share your message, then you get inspired and you go out and you do it in the world in one way or another. One of the things I wanted to remember to say, so I'll say it now lest I forget, is uh, a friend of mine who's the rabbi in Santa Fe, uh, whose weekly email to her community I get uh, has reminded her community that uh, their Sabbath services this Saturday will not be in the building that they normally meet, that they'll meet in Los Alamos instead. Because uh, this weekend is the 60th anniversary of August 6th and the exploding of the bomb in Hiroshima and the building of that bomb, the testing of it in Los Alamos. So they'll go have a Sabbath service of peace in Los Alamos, instead, New Mexico, instead of in their building. And she talked about the idea of bearing witness. Um, and I, I wanted to just somehow bring it, bring it up and have it in mind because I think that part of the business of spiritual practice is to be able to bear witness uh, to 
what happens has happened so that it doesn't happen again or so that the hearts and minds of people change. And how hard it is to do that around difficult events without polarizing one's own heart and becoming angry. How hard it is to look at that and bear peaceful witness to it, bear witness in the sense of, of, of uh, compassion for human beings, that this is one of the things that we still continue to do is wreak havoc on other people, other nations, other cultures, for some reason that we deem as significant enough to hurt them. And uh, to be able to do that without being angry, say, look, look, this isn't, we want to say this is a terrible thing to do, let's not do it again, but we want to say it without making bad guys and good guys again. It's tremendously hard to do. So one of the things that I thought about when I put together all these thinkings about what's, what's really a friend and what's really a community is I thought, is it the wisdom in the community or is it the friendship in the community that actually sustains us? Is it A, is it B, or is it all of the above? So, I, you know, I, clearly, I, so it was kind of a rhetorical question because I've already told you I think it's all of the above. But I have the sense that there are things that we know that are truths, that um, here are the truths that the Buddha said it was important to know, that everything is temporal. There are three truths. They're always the same truths. Everything is temporal. This too shall pass. This is whatever is happening isn't going to be here forever. That that truth of temporality um, is for many people uh, supportive in difficult times. This won't go on forever. Truth of temporality is also uh, one of those things in my experience that uh, really rouses my interest in this moment. Um, I think, oh, a month from now it's going to be great when I go on this holiday to wherever it is that I'm going. But then I'm already living a month from now. I'm not going to get to have this day again, ever. The Really, the truth of temporality. How on earth did I get to be 69? I have no idea where all that time went. And I'm positive. Somebody said in, in the sharing this morning, so-and-so who's 89, I thought, well, it could be tomorrow I get up and I find that I'm 89. May I not miss any time in between that, that the truth of temporality is don't miss now. The truth of temporality, by the way, which is so uh, consoling to people going through a difficult patch for which there's going to be an end, is one kind of truth of temporality. The truth of temporality is different for Joel and Martha at this point, where you have a certain number of days and you think, wow. So how to hold these truths, the truth of temporality, the truth of suffering. The truth of suffering, as the Buddha taught it, is that things are difficult. Some things are difficult. Some things are painful. Some things are really wonderful. And, uh, that the quality of peace or suffering in the mind is not contingent on what's happening. It's contingent on how the mind meets what's happening. That's such, that is actually the central teaching of the Buddha, that what happens is not the cause of suffering. How the mind is meeting what is happening is the cause or the not cause of suffering. And that the crucial meeting 
is that the meeting is a meeting that happens in peace and in non-resistance, in awareness, in wisdom. The mind that meets the experience or the moment or the person or the fact of what's going on with a mind that says, this is it, it's like this. I've been telling over and over and over again uh, Ajahn Sumedho's uh, teaching about, I say to myself when things are difficult, it's like this, and then it's okay. When I talked to him a few weeks ago when he was teaching here again, and I thanked him for that teaching, which I had first heard three or four years ago when he was teaching here, I said, that was so helpful. I said, I just got it, you know, and I, I said, I've, I've been all over the United States teaching that particular teaching that somehow it just got through me. It was spoke to my heart. And I said, I've been teaching people. I said, I tell them, Ajahn Sumedho said it just like this. He said, with a little hand gesture, <laughs> I say to myself, it's like this, and then I'm okay. And I said, I have people practice that little hand gesture as if it's going to do it. So he said, I did that. I made a little hand gesture like that. <laughs> so I don't know. I think you did. <laughs> so here it is three years later, and what, he's been, what he said all this time was, uh, he said it's like this a lot. And, but he has three more words he added. He said, um, I say to myself, here and now, it's like this. And actually, that, I like that even better because it leaves room yeah. for in a moment from now or tomorrow or it could be different. But here and now, it's like this. This is it, done deal, this moment. It already emerged, this truth, this moment, this person, this is the way it is. And it leaves room for what are you going to do now? Every moment of mindfulness conditions the arising of the next moment. You get to put something into this moment. If you meet this moment with peace, the next moment comes out different. remember, I don't remember exactly what the phrase was, but I, I remember reading to you a while back this year uh, from an essay in the Smithsonian Magazine about James Audubon, the, the painter of birds. Do you remember that? It was lovely. I don't, I don't remember it exactly. But he talked about his wife in his biography. He uh, wrote about his wife, Lucy Audubon, and he talked about the fact that they had some very big sadnesses early in their marriage. They had a child, maybe two children, but, but I, I think the first two of her children uh, were born but died as, as infants. And he said um, something like, um, no word of lament ever passed her gentle lips. Was I not ever lucky? You know, I thought, ah. And I remember we talked about it here, and we said, how did she do that? You know, the, the movement of the mind most often is, why me? Why now? It's not fair. Uh, and the whole wisdom is, you know, the whole thing isn't fair. According to what is it fair? It's lawful, but, you know, I shouldn't have this. I was a good person. I was a this or that. It happened. Things happen. And the third of those insights is the insight of things happen because other things happen because of this, this. 
that it's a lawful cosmos. So I was thinking about the fact that uh, how much do those particular uh, truths console, or how much does the fact that we say those truths to each other in the context of community console? I was thinking about that. Uh, I think about uh, in the prayer community of which I'm a part, and sometimes reading psalms, and you, I look around the room and we reading a psalm that says... Um, grass flourishes in the morning and it withers by nightfall, which is really the insight about temporality and aging and old age and sickness and death and the loss of health, of vigor, of vitality. And you can read it like blah, 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 grass flourishes in the morning and it withers and fades by nightfall. But if your personal grass is withering and fading or someone that you care about is withering and fading, does that does that hold up your heart because you remind you are reminded that it's not unique to you? This is the experience of everything that's taken form, or is it more depressing? You know, maybe it's a depressing thing to say. And I look around and I look in the community and I think about who who is hearing this, in what particular way, and is it at all sustaining? What do you think? Is it sustaining, or is it the fact that we say it in community? And we got friends around us saying it. That somehow we say, everybody knows this and everybody's still standing on their feet. This must be an all right thing to say. It's true, I don't like it, but it must be an all right thing to say. Everybody's standing here saying this. I think that religious communities get together to remind each other of what they know. You know, I, I, uh, uh, there's a lot to say, but I see it's almost 11. I went, I went to have lunch yesterday in Willie's Cafe in Kentfield. I was between places. I was hungry. It was lunchtime. I went to Willie's, got a table in the corner, and I actually had this pad out, and I had all my books out, and I was reading some things and reading uh, reminiscences of uh, uh, people around... Uh, uh, the end of the Second World War, which it, it, it is also was heralded by, you know, was coincident with the, or just proximal to the dropping of that bomb. So I'm writing away, and, and I'm, I'm writing about, uh, is it the truths that we hear, because people say truths, or is it that your ears are open to hear the truth? And two things came to mind. One was an event from the day before. I had been meeting for 10 years with a group of uh, Buddhist teachers. I've probably mentioned them to you, and uh, I've written about them somewhere. So there's a group of eight of us that have been meeting together once every two months for 10 years, and uh, across parochial lines. So some of us are Tibetans, and some of us are Zen teachers, and some of us are out of this Theravada lineage. And we are, most of all, over all these years, very close friends. You meet with people over 10 years in their mature life. And we thought we'd get together and talk Dharma, but we always talk about how we are and how we're managing in the life. So we love each other a lot. And uh, we just had a meeting the day before, and I was reflecting on one. We were talking about our teachers and uh, whom we had learned from and what appreciating teachers in some way. 
And one of the people, it doesn't matter who, because it could have been any of us, said, you know, this happened to me once with my teacher. Not a person there, but a person we all know. So this happened, uh, a person no longer in this life, actually. He said, this happened to me once with a teacher I knew, that I'd been with this person for a while and was close to them, and they knew me well. He said, and at one point, one day, that teacher looked at me. A certain thing was going on. There were other people there. And then at one point, the person, the teacher looked at me with a certain look, uh, just with what had just gone on, and I knew that this person had seen in me all of the ways in which I was not clear, not meticulous, not really focused, not really... All of a sudden, I saw all these things about myself. I was transformed in dedication and in zeal. I saw these things about myself just from him letting me know by that small gesture that he knew that about me and I was transformed. It was a wonderful moment and I'm so uh, grateful for that person's dedication for showing me in that moment. So one of us said, maybe he just turned his head, you know? <laughs> maybe he just happened to turn his head in that moment. And you know, maybe he had a crick in his neck or something. <laughs> uh, are you sure that he actually did that? Because the whole story was intentionally, he looked at me and nodded in a way that I should know, and this all came to light. We said, maybe you were ready to see that about yourself. And this person had a crick in their neck, and, <laughs> and you got it, you know? You know, do, does the wisdom come from somebody else, or is it ready to come out of us if we have the eyes and the ears? The first thing, this person said, no, 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 I'm sure I did it purposely. And then a little while later, he said, I'm thinking it over. <laughs> maybe yes, maybe no. I think the wisdom is all around. The wisdom is all around, and we keep spreading it around. So I was just thinking about that. I'm sitting in Willie's Cafe, and two people sit down next to me and a table next to me, probably my age, a man and a woman, they sit down. And I recognize the kind of talk that, that, uh, that the woman is saying to the man. They're reading the menu. She said, oh, I think you'd like that, but you probably wouldn't like this other thing. So they've been together for a long time, and <laughs> she knows what he'll like and what he won't like. And so they, they order lunch. And, uh, and then I realize that, you know, I'm, I'm writing my my notes for today, is that she is now reading the instructions from a doctor's office about the things you ought to do to take care of yourself while having chemotherapy and or radiation. About you know, So it says here you ought to make more appointments with your dentist, and it says here about keeping up this fluid intake and that we should really look into this vitamin. Or da -da. And in the meantime, they're having lunch, you know? And I am privy, accidentally, to really quite an important milestone moment in their life together, these people. So they're not Dharma teachers of great renown, but they were for me in that moment. They're sitting there eating lunch like regular people. If I'd been on the other side of Willie's, I would think two people my age having lunch. But I'm next to them, and I hear that I wasn't even sure that he was so interested in having her continue on reading so diligently through the whole thing. And I thought, I made a list as she's going on. You go to the dentist, drink more water. You had to, you had to have a, a shake in addition to the meal because you haven't been eating a lot, and the shake will give you more nutrients. And I, Oh, I didn't know this. You might use, lose your hair from this treatment. And Dove soap, you should wash with Dove soap. It's a particularly gentle soap. Meantime, he's eating away, 
and I thought maybe she could stop. He doesn't look like he wants any more information at this point. But you know, and and but it was in a calm, a kind way. You know, you could see that she was very involved, and I mean, it's her person. And I'm thinking, here's what do you do? Here's one of the because it's a question that's alive in my mind now. We have friends, we have intimates who suddenly have to know about what soap and what shakes and what this and what dentist and what what. And how do you do it with them? And could the answer be so simple as you just go out to lunch in Willie's Cafe and you order the same lunch and you say, okay, we'll do this, we'll do this, we'll do this, we'll do this. And I was tremendously happy that they had each other to go to lunch in Willie's Cafe, that they could afford it and that they could go there. I thought to myself, this is another example of uh, noble friends of the whole of the holy life. To have someone who's going to tell us to go to lunch and you know, brush your teeth. And we talked about that at our meeting of Buddhist teachers the other day. So, is it all much more simple than we think? Is it, uh, you know, is it about seeing profoundly in deep meditative states what's the truth of uh, experience? In deep meditative states, if you find out that everything is transient and that uh, clinging is the cause of suffering and that everything is contingent and interdependent. If you knew it, would that keep you warm when you hear that something difficult is happening? Or does somebody who cares about you keep you warm when something difficult is happening, whether or not they know any lofty insights? How much is the lofty insights? How much is the somebody keeping you warm because they care about you? I, I, you know, myself, I want all of the above, uh, you know, I, and, and a lot of it, um, and, uh, and companionship. So I think about us here, and the fact that I think we are uh, noble friends. Martha asked, uh, Martha had a request. She said, do you remember that Joe organized a prayer group for me the last time when I got sick? She said, and people were praying at 9 o'clock in the morning, or... Do you remember when they were praying, Joe? I don't remember. I remember we were just sending the emails around to the... Uh, I sent it... We sent it on the Yahoo, on our email. She said, I would feel great if I knew that there were people out there thinking about me, not necessarily getting together in a group, yeah. oh, sure. but if I knew that people were thinking about me from 7.30 to 7.45 in the morning, I'd sit at that point and think that they were thinking about me. So she said, would you ask Joe? Yeah. So I'm asking Joe. Okay, and then I'll, I'll call her and ask her what time it's good. Is that a good time, do you think? Not, she, she actually isn't up that early. <laughs> <laughs> I'll ask you which time. Tell her what time she wants. Whatever time she wants. We Whatever time she wants. It doesn't have to be just once a day either. It doesn't have to be once a day. Um, I actually think that's one of the great things that we can that we that that we can do here. It's been a discussion in the Spirit Rock uh, administrative circles for a long time. Are we a teaching institution or are we a church? Um, I, I, I again, all of the above, all of the above. But I think a teaching institution can't be other than a church in the sense of. Um, Life is so difficult. How can we be anything but kind? Which means hold each other in our hearts. 
uh, I had I had a plan to talk way more about friendship, and I didn't cover half of the material. I brought along um, uh, a. Uh, oh, I'll show it to you. Some you'll go read it in the bookstore. The value of friends. It's a Jataka tale. There are two Jataka tales in here, and I read them, and uh, they were neither of them the value of friends in the way that I wanted. One is a great story about uh, a hawk who proposed marriage to another hawk, and uh, the, the, the woman to whom he proposed marriage, the woman hawk, said, I won't marry you, or the man to the woman, I remember which was the one, said, I will, but not unless you get yourself a few friends, because uh, everything about you is wonderful, but you don't have friends, and we need friends. And so the, the uh, hawk without friends uh, gets an osprey and um, a turtle and a lion to agree to be uh, his or her friend. And they help them out in some extraordinary way. So that's why you need friends to get you out of tight situations. So it was a nice story, but it wasn't what I wanted. The other one was about uh, uh, another bird, or a, a woodpecker, who pulls out a, um, uh, a thorn from a lion's throat. So you, we all know this, say so you pull out from the paw or whatever, and then the lion comes back and helps you out. Well, this particular lion doesn't do that. This particular lion, the woodpecker gets hungry and is starving, and the, woodpe and the lion is eating a great carcass of an antelope, and the woodpecker says, can I have some of that carcass of antelope? And the lion says, no, nah, get out of here. And I remember you, you helped me out, but fully out of here. And... Um, uh, you know, and you're lucky I didn't eat you up while you were in my mouth. Anyway, I could have chomped you down in one bite. So uh, the uh, woodpecker flies up into the high air where uh, she or he meets a, 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 a forest sprite who says, why, why did you let the lion do that? And, uh, the woodpecker's my lion. No, the lion's my friend. How can you say the lion's your friend? It was so didn't share, said that nasty thing to you. Whereas your gumption, you could have plucked out the lion's eyes. You could have, at the very least, plucked up some of that antelope and made off with it. You know, you have sharp beak and faster than the lion. And uh, the, the woodpecker said, no, no, no. It's important for me to keep uh, the lion as my friend because the most important thing is to have everything in the world be a friend in my heart and then I'm happy. So they're both good Dharma stories, but then neither of them who can you call up at 2 o'clock in the morning <laughs> and say, are you thinking about me? So, so I think one of the things that we do is we make ourselves a community. So I wish you very well for the several weeks that I'll be gone. And I'll be back. And uh, I, w I wish before we go, if you would... Uh, how are you, Gretchen? Are you well? I'm glad to see you again. Up and down. Up and down. Gretchen is a per I tell everybody about Gretchen's father who made her the sign that says... Next week, but we'll oh, but will you come with him? Uh, if you can fit it in. Gretchen's father is the wood uh, worker who made her the sign that says this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got uh, about Gretchen having MS. So. I, all over the place I tell about that. So it will, I hope, uh, lead to a great, that'll end up to be the greatest remark, the greatest Dharma remark, the most favorite Dharma remark. I think that's what we're meant to do is hold each other in goodwill.
This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on August 3, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.